Father, thank you for this time that we've had this term looking at this book written so long ago and yet speaking directly into our concerns today as we see how this points us to Jesus, as we see what this says uh, about leadership and about power and about our lives today in general. Help us again to see afresh today what it means to live as your people, what it means to have Jesus as our King. We pray that you would open our eyes to see that now. Amen. Well, it's been said that human beings can live three weeks without food, three days without water, three minutes without oxygen, but not even three seconds without hope. Fyodor Dostoevsky wrote, to live without hope is to cease to live. Now, in the first lockdown, we kind of reclaimed the rainbow as a symbol of hope, of better things to come. And I guess Christian or or, or non-Christian, we are all living in hope of some kind or another. But the content of that hope will vary from person to person. So what would you say you are hoping for at the moment? Uh, maybe an early night, maybe uh, a Christmas without a call from NHS Test and Trace, or maybe for mass vaccination, for herd immunity achieved quickly and safely. Well, we've seen throughout this book, in, in 1 Samuel, this term, that there is a constant basic contrast between human hopes and dreams on the one hand, and then God's plans for his people, on the other hand. And this crystallised around two very different visions for what kind of king is the king that God's people really need. What kind of king is going to bring hope? The king that the people want, who fits their own ideas about what's going to work best for them and their plans for themselves, or the king that God chooses for them? 1 Samuel makes it clear that it is God's choice of king, which is the king that they need. But then we've had this period where God's choice, who's King David, he's the king in waiting, but the people's choice, who's King Saul, is still on the throne. And we've witnessed the very slow unwinding of the kingship of Saul, which began with his disobedience back in chapters 13 and 15, and God announced to him through Samuel that his kingdom would not be established. And by chapter 31, we've returned to the situation we started with in the first few chapters. We've kind of gone full circle. We started with battle with the Philistines. There was another battle with the Philistines, chapter 17, Goliath and all that. But now we return again, battle with the Philistines. And I don't know if you remember, if you were here with us at the beginning, what happened in the first battle with the Philistines, the Israelites took the Ark of the Covenant, um, they took it from the tabernacle where it was supposed to live, as the symbol of the presence of God, and they took it out with them into battle, like a kind of good luck charm, thinking it would save them. And then the Philistines captured it, and then God fought for Israel, and he rescued them, and the ark was returned. And as a result of all that, rather than acknowledging that they needed God to save them, they needed to trust God, the people said, 
yeah, do you know what? We need a king to save us like the other nations have so that this doesn't happen to us again. So it was a battle with the Philistines that gave rise to the Israelites saying, we need a king. And now we arrive at chapter 31, and what is the situation now? Well, it's war with the Philistines once again, and where has their trust in the king they wanted got them? Where have they ended up? Well, this time around, they don't just lose the ark, they lose the king himself. And over this chapter, as with the rest of the book, uh, we see Hannah's prayer hanging from chapter 2. We see the two trajectories as the tall, handsome people's choice of king is brought low and the unknown, puny David, God's choice of king, is raised up from nothing. And uh, this is what we see then, chapter 31, the end of Saul being brought low. So let's see how that happens and let's see the implications for that. We see this in three sections in this chapter. First of all, the king's faithless reign ends in the king's death, verses 1 to 6. King's faithless reign ends in the king's death. The, The Philistines are running riot against the Israelites. First, almost in passing, we hear in verse 2, if you look, uh, of the death of three of Saul's sons. And that includes, tragically, Jonathan, who had understood that David, not his father Saul, was God's anointed. And and Jonathan had pledged allegiance to David and not to Saul. And yet now, due purely to the ties of kinship, he finds himself at his father's side in battle and he's suffering for it. He dies. And again, back in chapter 2, in Hannah's prayer, she spoke of the bows of the mighty being broken. You know, the, the archers with their bows. And she was prophesying that the, 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 here the, the mighty armies would be brought down. But in one sense, this is the kind of ironic opposite of that. Can you see that? Because here is the apparent mighty one being brought down by the bow as he's wounded critically. And now he faces death utterly alone. And so he begs his armour bearer, please run me through with your sword. But do you remember David in these chapters where, we've, where, the, where David's been in the wings and, and Saul's still been on the throne? David has refused to lay a hand on the Lord's anointed, on Saul. And the armour bearer seems to have the same response. You know, I can't, I can't do that. And so Saul is left utterly alone and at this point it is what Paul does what what Saul does not say that is significant because if you think about it being alone in death is not unknown to kings in the bible is it king David himself seems to have faced death a number of times and certainly suffered hugely And to have done so in a very lonely way. And in the face of those ordeals, he wrote, for example, Psalm 22. And verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. That is the suffering king crying out to God. And of course, we know those words, don't we? Because they are the words that Jesus cried from the cross, as we heard Moses read in the second 
reading. But what do we find here with Saul as he is facing death alone? Well, God is entirely absent. Actually, God isn't even mentioned in this whole chapter. He's entirely uh, missing from the narrative. Saul is God-forsaken, but even more chillingly, he's just accepted it and he's given up. And so in just a few words, Saul brings his own reign to an end. Contrast the faithlessness of Saul's reign and the way that that ends with the faithfulness of Jesus' reign. How does Jesus die? Well, he dies fearing God. He dies serving God. And he dies... In a sense, God forsaken, he dies, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he uh, willingly endures God's judgment and his God forsakenness that he doesn't deserve. Jesus faces all that and he takes it on himself, but it's not without a purpose. He does it on behalf of his people. Saul, on the other hand, is dying for his failure to fear God and to serve the Lord. And he dies alone, a symbol of human pride and human hope and where it ends. We, we know, don't we? We know this is the way all human empires end, whether it's the, you know, maybe the Roman Empire. No one could have believed that the Roman Empire would finally end. Or the British Empire, on which the sun would never set. Or, uh, in a slightly different world, think, think of the businesses that represented old technology. So, uh, are you aware of Kodak, the photography company? Kodak, do you know Kodak was founded in 1889? And at one point it had a global market share of 50% and a US market share of 80%. But from 1889, being founded in mid-20th century, seemed to be, you know, nothing could stop it. In 2012, it went bust. I think it's kind of relaunched uh, more recently. But it it went, uh, suffered that huge, massive decline. Or or, or what about um, Blockbuster Video? Do you remember that? (laughs) If you're a bit too young, you won't remember this. But, you know, there used to be be a Blockbuster Video on every high street. And you would go there and you would get your... Your, 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 your rental video from there to take home and put into your VCR player and watch the latest movies. Now gone bust. Or, or another one, Tower Records, which used to sell kind of CDs, whatever they are. And um, you know, those, those would have been seen as just you know, empires that could never fall, and they've gone, disappeared, um, such that some people wouldn't even have heard of them. And the problem is, isn't it, it's hard to believe that the giants we take for granted now could ever be brought low. You know, in that world, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Apple, Google, even the internet itself, could it ever go? And if we struggle to believe it about things like that, well, what about with life itself? See, we live as if we will live forever so easily, don't we? But every human project fails in the end. That is what Saul's life and his 
death teach us? And if we're not yet trusting in Jesus for ourselves, this is step one of coming to faith in him, is realising there is no hope in me and my dreams and my projects. I'm not going to be able to find the solutions to the problems that I face in myself. We need to understand that and face up to it and own that. But then there's more. And that's what we see here. We come next to see the king's enemies next proclaim the king's death. The king's enemies proclaim the king's death. Verses 7 to 10. So first of all, God's people flee in panic um, as they, 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 um, they saw that uh, the, the, the army had gone and Saul and his sons had died and they abandoned their towns and they flee, verse 7. And then uh, the, um, the Philistines mutilate Saul's body. And they cut off his head like David did with, the, with their fellow countryman Goliath in chapter 17. And actually this mutilation in death was exactly what Saul was hoping to avoid back in verse 4, but it happens anyway. And then, do you see, they proclaim the news of Saul's death. Where do they go? They go to the temple of their idols, and they proclaim it among their people. Do you see what they're doing? It's as if they're undoing what happened back in chapter 5. That was the first battle. When they captured the ark from the Ark of the Covenant, the chest which had the the, the Ten Commandments in it from the tabernacle, when they captured that from the Israelites because they'd taken it into battle, and they took it back and they put it in their own temple with their idols, and every morning they would go into the temple and they'd find that their idols had fallen over, and it was highly kind of humiliating for them, and they could think, well, this, this is a bit odd, this is a bit strange, what's going on here? See, now they're kind of getting their own back as they go back into the temple of their idols and they say... They proclaim the good news that you know, the, the, the king of that vicious enemy, the Israelites, has fallen. So they preach this gospel. That's what the word gospel means. Good news of the death of Saul in their land and in their temple. All the defeats that we've suffered at the hands of Israel and of Saul. The losses we've faced. The loss of our giant Goliath. It's all been vindicated, they're saying and they're thinking. Our enemies have been vanquished once and for all, or so they think. Saul's body is fastened to the wall so that he can be jeered at and ridiculed in defeat. And in one sense, as you look at that, it seems to be the seal on the end of God's people's dreams, doesn't it? It really is all over and his enemies have won. That's what it looks like. See, this is the life support being switched off unplugged, the body being taken off to the morgue. There is no coming back from this, it might seem. But here's the thing. God's enemies never have the last word. Just because it appears that God's people are losing, it doesn't mean that his enemies are winning. Do you know the story of the 18th century French philosopher Voltaire? He predicted that within a hundred years of his day, the Bible would have passed into the mists of history as people became more and more liberated and enlightened. Well, Voltaire died in 1778. Do you know what actually happened when he died? 
Well, far from the Bible kind of passing into the mists of history, his own house was taken over by the French Bible Society and used as a place to store their Bibles before distributing them. See, God's enemies may gloat, but their gloating never lasts. When they put Jesus' body in the tomb, it seemed that it was all over. That's the tone of that, that what we heard when Moses read that second reading. That's the, the tone that we get as they kind of despondently give up and go home. And they went and they hid and they locked the door of the upper room as they gathered and they mourned and they said, what do we do now? Because it's all over. We've lost. And we've lost our great leader. And, and you can imagine then that you know, the religious leaders and the Romans and the crowds would have shared the news. The reign of that troublemaker Jesus is over. We've got rid of him for good. And, you know, they can go back and say, finally, we've solved the problem. It's finished. But of course, then on the third day, everything changed. And that uh, everything was different as Jesus rose from the dead. And it's the same today, isn't it? E even today, it can sometimes seem as if God's enemies are winning and God's people have lost. You know, whether it's reports of sin, reports of abuse even within the leadership of God's people, or churches closed and dwindling in numbers, or Christians silenced and imprisoned or sidelined and ignored... And the world looks on and kind of chuckles and mocks. But it's not all over. And this is a little warning to us, isn't it? As God's people's enemies go to proclaim the good news of the death of Saul, they need to know it's not over. It's not all over. Don't take life at face value. And we need to know that too. Don't take Jesus at face value. whether it's evaluating our circumstances, evaluating what's happening to God's people in this country, in the wider world, in the face of persecution, or whether it's just looking at Jesus for ourselves and thinking, how could a, a penniless carpenter from 2,000 years ago, how could he really be the centre of history, the one on whom life and death depend? Can that really be true? Well, there is more than meets the eye. We need to see that. You know, we use that phrase, the wrong side of history. We kind of throw that around at each other in the wider world. See, at this point, the Philistines would have been utterly convinced that they were on the right side of history, wouldn't they? As they go home and they put the, uh, the, uh, Saul's body in their temple and they proclaim the good news to one another of what's happened. We're on the right side of history and Israel isn't. But it turned out to be completely the opposite. Well, it wouldn't be good to be on the wrong side of history with the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns in glory, would it? That is the warning of these verses here. They mock, but it's not all over. And we get... A final hint of that in the last three verses. 
So thirdly, the king's people mourn the king's death. Verses 11 to 13. When the people of Jabesh-Gilead heard of what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their valiant men journeyed down through the night to Bethshan. They took down the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall of Bethshan and went to Jabesh where they burned them. Then they took their bones and buried them under a tamarisk tree at Jabesh. And they fasted seven days. What are they doing as they do this? They are risking their own lives, these guys from Jabesh Gilead. They're showing great courage as they go into Philistine territory just to get a dead body and bring it back. Why are they doing that? Well, they're they're doing that out of respect for their fallen leader, aren't they? Last time we heard of the people of Jabesh Gilead in this book was before Saul's fall from grace. And it was right at the beginning of his reign in chapter 11 when he rescues them from the Ammonites. And they come to him now, perhaps out of respect for that deed. And, And just with that, although we know Saul is not God's choice and we know he's the fallen leader and we know Israel's hopes do not rest in Saul, there is still that smallest sense of some kind of hope here. Why would you go bother to go and bring back the dead body of a king unless you had a sense that the story is not yet over? And so they mourn his death. And when we come to, to Matthew 27 that Moses read for us, we, we see a similar kind of action in uh, Joseph of Arimathea. See, a follower of Jesus. Does he understand what he's doing as he, as he goes and he collects the body and he places the body in a tomb? He, he presumably just thinks he's just doing the right thing. Just, just showing a bit of respect for this fallen leader before he goes home to mourn with the rest of them. And with Saul, it's not that he was then raised from the dead. He's buried under a tamarisk tree, maybe like that one on the screen. He's buried there, and that's where his body remains. This is the end of the story for Saul, but it's not the end of the story for God's people. It's not the end of the story for God's plans. It's not the end of the story for God's purposes. Where human hopes are squashed, hope in God's true king remains. Now, at some point uh, in, in the, the months to come, we will no doubt return to, to Samuel and see how the reign of God's chosen king, David, was established, even as that king turned out to be a sinner as much as every human being. It's not that David was perfect, but even he, as God's chosen king here, looks true king remains. Death appears to be this final curtain this glass wall that you can't get past it cannot be penetrated but what does Jesus do he he hits that wall he smashes his way through it to the other side see and the, the world says to us what was the world you know what are we doing with with hope at the moment the world would say well put your hope in the vaccine put your hope in the scientists put your hope in the government to make everything right again the life and death of Saul say Don't be so narrow-minded. Don't be so small-minded to think that that's the best we can hope for. See, for the Christian who trusts in Jesus, the best is always yet to come, no matter our circumstances here and now, because he died and rose from the dead. Death never has the last word. Sadness and mourning and pain and suffering never have 
the last word. In in Hannah's prayer again, back at the beginning of the book in chapter 2, she said, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. He will give strength to his king and he will exalt the power of his anointed. And see, 1 Samuel leaves us in no doubt that it was God who brought Saul down. It was God who was raising David up. And when David turned out to be a flawed king, it was God who raised his Messiah, his Christ, his anointed one, and brought him into the world 2,000 years ago to die and then to rise. So today, if we're not yet trusting in Jesus, what's stopping us from taking him seriously? Let's take the opportunity this Christmas to look beneath the surface, look at what's really going on with God's King Jesus. Take the opportunity, maybe in January, as we put on a, uh, a, a, an evening of a three evening course looking into the, the basics of Christian faith. Come and join us to, to look at this King for yourself. But for any of us, in the face of hopelessness in the face of despair in the face of darkness in the face of death itself we need to be in no doubt God will exalt his anointed we can trust him there is hope so let's pray now So, Father, we thank you that there is hope in the face of death and darkness and despair and hopelessness. In a broken world, we need to know this hope in Jesus and the world around us and our friends and our neighbours and our colleagues, our families. They need to know this hope too. Help us to bring that hope to them. Not to give in to despair and hopelessness in our present circumstances but to trust and know that when we trust in your King, Jesus, we have real hope that lasts forever, even through death. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.